We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 55 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. This is the Star Wars day, right? May the 4th be with you. Uh, I am not a Star Wars guy. Never have been a Star Wars guy. I have nothing against Star Wars. I just never really got into it. As a kid, I got into more sophisticated things like pro wrestling. But if you are a Star Wars fan, if you are among those who go to parties and or conventions dressed up, as your favorite Star Wars characters, knock yourself out on this May the 4th, 2021. What a Monday night for the Capitals and Wizards. Sheer insanity going on for those teams and their games. You talk about cuckoo? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yes, the Caps and Wiz were in games that were cuckoo on Monday night. For the Caps, a 6-3 win at the New York Rangers in a game in which the actual game was like the 10th most important thing. Alex Ovechkin was back. Then out again, Evgeny Kuznetsov and Ilya Samsonov were suspended by the team. Tom Wilson totally lost it in the second period. I just mentioned pro wrestling. Tom Wilson went like Bruiser Brody in the second period, throwing a bunch of chairs while brawling all over the arena with Abdullah the Butcher. Probably like six people listening just got that reference. But those who got the reference appreciate the reference. I can promise you that. Actually, Bruiser Brody was once a member 
of the Washington football team. Interesting that he comes up here. Uh, Bruiser Brody's real name was Frank Gudish. He was on Washington's taxi squad in the late 1960s. Anyway, Caps game was bonkers and the Wizards game was nuts. All you need know is the final score. 154-141. That was the final of a win over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena. And that was a regulation score. That was that overtime. Four quarters. Final score. Wizards 154. Pacers 141. Another spectacular performance by Russell Westbrook, who Scott Brooks during his virtual postgame press conference said is the second best point guard ever behind Magic Johnson. Quote, point guards don't do what he does. End quote. Talking about Westbrook. Quite the proclamation from old Scotty boy. Uh, I don't know if Westbrook is number two all time, but he's up there, no doubt, and he may be number two all time. I mean, the issue would be the postseason, but if you're just looking at the regular season, yeah, I mean, there is a really good case to be made for Westbrook. He has been phenomenal, and he certainly has been phenomenal for the Wizards here in recent weeks. So I will talk Capitals and Wizards on this installment of the podcast, in addition to lots more on the Washington football team's 2021 draft. If you liked Washington's draft, I have for you two new reasons to like the team's draft even more. I'll give you those reasons momentarily. Also, special guest on the show, a man who knows Washington's first-round pick, Kentucky linebacker, Jamin Davis, very well. Kentucky co-defensive coordinator and inside linebackers coach, John Sumrall. He'll give us the truth about the rise of Jamin Davis, the reality about Jamin as a player, including his pass coverage skills, and which linebacker position Jamin is best suited for. You'll hear about all of that and much more from John Sumrall, not Pat Sumrall, John Sumrall on the show talking Jamin Davis. No Nationals game on Monday, but I will talk Orioles. Another win for them late night on Monday night. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Rob Simmons regarding the Washington football team's 2021 draft. First of all, Rob says, thank you so much for the two bonus episodes over the weekend. Yes, uh, you're welcome, Rob. And for those of you who have yet to catch up on them, do so. They are there. They are waiting for you to be listened to episodes 52 and 53 regarding what Washington did Friday night and then Saturday in the 2021 draft. But continues, Rob, I was surprised to see that the WFT dropped five spots, I think more than any other team, in the NFL.com's post-draft power rankings. They moved the Bears up four spots into the WFT's previous rank of 19, probably on drafting Justin Fields, but I am still not sure why the WFT would drop five spots. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't really ever get too caught up in these power rankings, and I'm not saying that you are, Rob, but with Washington, there is a perpetual disrespect. There is. I mean, this has been the case for years, and you know what? If you are aware of Washington's recent history, i.e. the last quarter century plus, that disrespect is not unfounded. Like, there's a reason that people continually, if not dismiss Washington, they kind of look down on Washington. The results, far more often than not, over the last quarter century plus, have not been good. I do think Washington is poised to have a good 2021 season. Certainly, there are some things that need to be improved upon from last season, principal among them, the quarterback play. There is the concern of the schedule, at least on paper, being a lot harder this coming season as compared to last season's schedule, although the schedule game is always so tricky, and that which looks so difficult in April and May can end up being a totally different story come October, November. But you know what? Put Washington wherever you want to put Washington in the power rankings. We are used to it by now. 
whether it's Fox not long ago, not even including the Washington football team in a logo of supposedly every team in the NFL, whether it is national people referring to the team derisively as the football team, whether it's pro football talk with its constant bashing of the team, no matter what it does, disrespect our franchise, okay? Just understand, Ron Rivera, Don Ron, has got this thing going in the right direction, and hopefully we continue to see signs of that come the 2021 season. Email from Andrew. Just wanted to know, does it hurt your ratings, i.e. ability to get the cash, if I don't listen to the entire podcast? Sometimes I have to cut it short and don't go back. If that hurts you, let me know. I can always go back and run it to the end. Selfishly, I want to do anything I can to make sure you have a strong story to get the advertisers. Jeez, Andrew, you talk about a loyal soldier. Regarding the Al Galdi podcast, Andrew might be number one. That's quite a, a, a uh, an email to write, quite a question to be asking of, yeah, does it hurt you if I don't listen to the whole thing? If so, I'll just play the whole thing so you can get credit for me listening to the whole thing. Uh, look, man, I appreciate that very much. Uh, the most important things you can do for this podcast to support it are subscribe, rate, review, and support our existing advertisers. So I would say, like, if you're really trying to help out, those are the things that you can best do. But subscribe, rate, review. That's always a big one, right? Subscribe so you're downloading it every day. Give the ratings. Give like a one-sentence review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It's very easy to do. It takes like 30 seconds, and it helps the thing out quite a bit. You can also spread the word. Let people know about the podcast. Let people know it is an alternative to sports talk radio, which can be uh, not so good at times these days. So yeah, there are many things you can do uh, to help out. But thank you, Andrew. Jeez, that was uh, that's a very nice thing that you asked about. Uh, and we are always welcoming of new advertisers. You can email me to find out more. Let the Al Galdi podcast work for you to grow your business in the DMV. You can hit me up, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Let the power of the pod work for you, just like it's working for Dr. Matthew Mintz, a big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast, who's Practice really is the antithesis of so much of what's wrong with healthcare right now. As you likely know, these days you want to see a doctor, you have to book an appointment like three months out. Then when your appointment finally arrives, you have to wait in the waiting room for like an hour. Then the actual appointment ends up being short, not to your satisfaction. And if you have a question days later, forget about getting a call back from your doctor in a timely fashion. Well, Dr. Matthew Mintz is pushing back on all of this. He is an internal medicine and primary care physician whose concierge membership practice allows for old-fashioned personalized care in which every patient is a person, not a number. Dr. Mintz offers next day, even same day appointments, longer appointment times, 24-7 after hours access. And how about this lab work that's done in the office. You're not driving all over the place to get your blood drawn. You can do that right in Dr. Mintz's office. And also, unlike most other concierge practices, Dr. Matthew Mintz can generate invoices for patients that can be submitted for reimbursement from most insurances. His office is located in Bethesda in the Wildwood Medical Center across the street from Balducci's. He's a big Washington football team fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast, and he offers a free meet and greet in person or virtual. So you can see if Dr. Mintz's practice is right for you. Set up your free meet and greet by going to drmintz.com. That's drmintz.com and that's D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com or call his office. Tell his office that you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. The free meet and greet, the phone number is 855-646-8963. That's 855 646 
800-800-8963. Dr. Matthew Mintz, an internal medicine and primary care physician who provides medical care the way you like it, the way it used to be, and the way it should be, and tell him Al Galdi sent you. Dr. Matthew Mintz will make you feel better, just like these two things that I'm about to tell you about Washington's 2021 draft are going to make you feel even better about that. All right, so before we get to our special guest, Kentucky co-defensive coordinator and inside linebackers coach John Sumrall, who's going to give us an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at Jamin Davis, two things emerged on Monday regarding the Washington football team's 2021 draft that will make you like the draft and or draft process even more. So Washington on Monday announced having agreed on a deal with undrafted Buffalo running back Jarrett Patterson. This was not a surprise. Patterson indicated on Twitter shortly after the conclusion of the draft on Saturday evening that he had agreed on a deal with Washington. I will not do the Thaddeus Moss thing right now and gush over Patterson. I will stay calm. Uh, I will say, though, that I do like this signing. Patterson is a local. He went to St. Vincent Pilate High School in Laurel, Maryland. He is not an athletic freak along the lines of so many of those who Washington drafted this year. Uh, Patterson at the Buffalo Pro Day on March 18th measured as being just 5'6 half, buck 95, ran a 40 of 4.52 seconds. But Patterson has been incredibly productive. Three consecutive thousand yard rushing seasons for Buffalo, 2018 through 2020. He, over his three seasons for the Bulls, averaged 6.11 yards per carry, totaled 52 rushing touchdowns. And my favorite thing about Patterson is this. In his 2020 junior season for Buffalo, he had 1,072 rushing yards and 19 rushing touchdowns over just five games. Five games, the guy had 1,000 plus yards and 19 rushing touchdowns. He's been terrific when it comes to yardage after contact and forcing missed tackles. So heck yeah, undrafted free agent contract for Jared Patterson. Why the heck not? But here is what is especially interesting about the Patterson signing. And this is item number one that emerged on Monday regarding why you should like the Washington football team's 2021 draft or draft process even more. So Patterson for now is the only undrafted free agent who Washington is signing. That could change, but for now, he's the guy as Washington for a second consecutive offseason isn't signing many undrafted free agents. This very clearly has become a theme under Ron Rivera. We are used to, in years past, Washington, like many teams, signing a bunch of undrafted free agents, a bunch of UDFAs, all right, UDFAs. That hasn't happened now in each of two consecutive off-seasons. Last off-season, Washington announced the signing of just four undrafted free agents. LSU tight end Thaddeus Moss will stay calm because he's no longer with the team. Colorado quarterback Steven Montez, Temple receiver Isaiah Wright, and Missouri receiver Jonathan Johnson. Ron made the rounds on Monday, gave a bunch of interviews talking draft, and among the interviews he granted was to B. Mitch and Finley on 106.7 The Fan. And Rod said something very interesting, and that is this. Washington strategically made that trade with the Philadelphia Eagles on day three of the draft. Remember the trade? Washington got a six-round pick and a seventh-round pick from the Eagles in exchange for a fifth-round pick in the 2022 draft. The reason, Ron said, that Washington made this trade was to get the players who Washington wanted as UDFAs as draft choices, as opposed to having to compete for those players as UDFAs, and also potentially having to pay those players more as UDFAs, because if you're having to negotiate with those players while they're negotiating with other teams, the prices for those players goes up. If you draft a guy in the sixth or seventh round, the price more or less is what the price is going to be. That's smart. 
I mean, that's good draft strategy. Now, you have to spend some draft capital to do that. That is true. But the idea of we like certain people, we want to make sure we get those people and we don't lose those people in, you know, a modest bidding war. I mean, it's not like you're talking tens of millions of dollars for undrafted free agents. But if guys have their picks of where they go, that can complicate things for you. You want to get your guys, you have specific players who you feel like fit what you're trying to establish here, go ahead and spend draft choices on those guys. So it makes sense. And think about this regarding last year's undrafted free agents. Three of the four ended up being with the team in the season. Now, in various ways, Thaddeus Moss spent the year on the reserve slash injured list, but Moss, Steven Montez, Isaiah Wright. I mean, Montez was with the team on the practice squad. Remember, initially, he, not Taylor Heineke, was the backup to Dwayne Haskins when Alex Smith got hurt, and Isaiah Wright ended up playing a decent amount for Washington in the 2020 regular season. Ron Rivera values undrafted free agents, the UDFAs, and so the strategy is to make them not UDFAs, but actual draftees. I get that. I, th- I think there's a, a real cogent thinking in doing that. Now, I still don't like Washington trading for a six-round pick and then using that pick on a long snapper, okay? Cameron Cheeseman of Michigan, but I can appreciate this strategy, and I certainly like what Washington did with the seventh-round pick that the team got from the Eagles. Washington spent the first of the team's three seventh-round picks, pick number 240 overall, which was acquired via that trade with the Eagles, on Baylor edge rusher William Bradley King. William Bradley King is another athletic freak selected by Washington in the 2021 draft. He, per that Kentley Platy metric, relative athletic score, RAS, had an RAS of 9.18. That's on a scale of 0 to 10. That qualifies as great. And William Bradley King at the Baylor Pro Day on March 31st, measures being 6'3 and a half, 252 pounds, ran a 4'7", 440. He's a guy who had an elite season in 2019 for Arkansas State. He only played for Baylor for just the 2020 season, spent the previous four seasons at Arkansas State. And Bradley King in the 2019 season had a pass rush grade for pro football focus of 91.4. That's on a scale of 0 to 100. That ranked number four among edge rushers in the 2021 NFL draft. Bradley King finished that 2019 season for PFF with nine sacks, 13 quarterback hits, and 31 hurries. So if we're doing the thing of who are the undrafted free agents for Washington this year, you almost have to kind of lump them in together with the sixth and seventh round picks, because that's kind of the way that Ron Rivera and the new look front office ended up approaching things. And of course, if you know your Washington football, you know that undrafted free agents have contributed in recent seasons. I mean, this happens across the NFL. Most of the league, in case you don't know, like two thirds of the rosters are comprised of day three picks and undrafted free agents. Like the the crux of the league isn't first and second round picks. The crux of the league, two thirds of the league, you're talking about fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round picks and undrafted free agents. But just thinking about recent Washington football team history, uh, Steven Sims Jr., 2019, undrafted rookie. Fat Rob Kelly, 2016, undrafted free agent. One of Jay Gruden's favorites. Oh man, I love Rob Kelly. Uh... Yes, Jay, calm down, please. Uh, Quentin Dunbar, 2015, undrafted free agent. Will Compton, 2013, undrafted free agent. Logan Paulson, 2010, undrafted free agent. Brandon Banks, 2010, undrafted free agent. Darrell Young, 2009, undrafted free agent. The second item that emerged on Monday regarding the Washington football team's 2021 draft that makes you like the draft and or draft process even more has to do with the Notre Dame linebacker, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, who Washington, of course, did not draft, even though the team could have drafted him, 
even in the second round. JOK was selected with the very next pick in the second round after Washington's pick. Cleveland Browns took JOK at number 52 overall off the Browns making a trade with the Carolina Panthers. ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter on Monday tweeted that Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, quote, had a heart issue that came up late in the process and was a concern for most teams, end quote. Schefter added that doctors ultimately cleared JOK, but also that the heart issue did contribute to him falling in the 2021 draft. If you listen closely right now, uh, that's Ron Rivera saying, how you like me now? How you like me now? How you like me now? Yeah, that's Ron right now and all the critics who are on him for taking Jamin Davis and not Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. How do you like me now? How do you like me now? Yes, thank you, Ron. Channel your inner Kirk Cousins. Just don't tell RG3 because he might be offended by that. Now, I don't believe that the heart issue for Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa necessarily dooms him. Remember, Montez Sweat fell in the 2019 draft in part because of a perceived heart issue. The biggest concern with Sweat going into that draft for a lot of people was this pre-existing heart condition that came to light at the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis that year. Per NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com, tests taken at that combine revealed that Sweat might have had something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Sweat's been with Washington for two seasons, has started every one of the team's games in the potential heart issue hasn't come up once. But obviously not every heart issue is the same. And given how many times in recent seasons Washington has dealt with key players not playing due to ailments, if Washington's training and medical staffs did not feel comfortable with JOK's heart situation, then passing on him makes even more sense. The previous perceived reasons for JOK falling had to do with A, his size, and B, his role. JOK is undersized for an NFL linebacker. He at the Notre Dame Pro Day on March 31st measured as being just six one and a half and 221 pounds. And I don't necessarily get all caught up in that, but I know that that can be an issue for people, especially when his actual role in the NFL is kind of undefined. And, you know, JOK to me is one of these all-purpose weapon types for whom you need to have a plan. Like, you need to have a good idea, innovative idea for how to use him. Otherwise, he's going to fall through the cracks. And I don't think it helps JOK's cause that Isaiah Simmons ended up underwhelming for the Arizona Cardinals this past season. Isaiah Simmons, remember, there's a lot of talk about him going into the 2020 draft, the all-purpose defensive weapon at a Clemson. Cardinals took Simmons with the number eight pick in the 2020 draft, and he ended up not having that good of a rookie season. Now, that doesn't mean that he's a lost cause. I think, again, you need to be open-minded with people like Simmons and JOK. They are new agey type defensive players, but Isaiah Simmons for pro football focus in his 2020 rookie season, an overall grade of just 59.9. You know, there were some who suggested maybe Washington should have taken Simmons and not Chase Young with that number two overall pick in the 2020 draft. I know that may sound insane, but that was the thing. In fact, Kedrick Golston, the former Washington defensive lineman, told me on radio that he thought Washington going into that draft should have taken Simmons and not Chase Young. And Kedrick has since said, yeah, I was wrong about that. Kedrick's a really smart guy, but even he was like, wow, Isaiah Simmons is really good. He may still end up being good, but he wasn't that good this past season. So I think that may have spooked some teams when it comes to JOK. But now that we know about this heart concern, well, that makes a lot more sense for why Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa fell all the way down to number 52 overall. But even if you like JOK, and I do, I'm not a JOK basher, uh, knowing what we now know about the heart, you tell me, would you rather have him or Jamin Davis, especially as we continue to learn more and more 
about Jamin Davis. I mean, Jamin Davis, long-armed athletic freak, killed it at the Kentucky Pro Day, measured as being 6'3 and a half, 234 pounds, ran a 4'3740, had a 42-inch vertical leap, was a tackling machine for Kentucky this past season, fourth in the SEC, 20th in the FBS in tackles per game and total tackles. Very good against the run. For pro football focus this past season, Davis, a run defense grade of 87.5, fourth among all qualified off-ball linebackers on Power 5 conference teams. Davis certainly seems to be a guy who fits the Ron Rivera culture reset perfectly. Remember the Jamin Davis mantra of, you can't have a million-dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic, okay? Put that on a t-shirt and sell it. And Jamin Davis has been durable. Three seasons of playing at Kentucky, played in 36 of a possible 37 games. The only game that he missed was a 63-3 loss at Alabama this past November 21st. And that was due to COVID-19 protocols. And don't forget this, and I will keep coming back to this when it comes to Jamin Davis being the pick and not JOK or any other linebacker at number 19 overall for Washington. Washington, with this new look front office of Ron Rivera, Marty Herney, and Martin Mayhew, has three guys with excellent histories when it comes to drafting linebackers. The overall draft histories for Herney and Mayhew are mixed. But when it comes to linebackers, these guys have done a really good job. Marty Herney, as Carolina Panthers general manager over his two stints, drafted Will Witherspoon, Thomas Davis, John Beeson, Ron with Marty with the Panthers, drafted Luke Keekley. Ron without Marty with the Panthers was a part of a Panthers team that drafted Shaq Thompson. Mayhew, as Detroit Lions general manager, drafted DeAndre Levy, drafted Tyre Whitehead. Like, these guys know the linebacker position, so they deserve a benefit of the doubt. You know, there, to me, is a trust in the process that you can have, that you should have, when it comes to Ron, Martin, and Marty and drafting linebackers. So I'm very happy that Jamin Davis is with Washington. I think he's got a chance to kill it as a three-down linebacker. And now we find out more about Jamin from a guy who's coached him up. All right, so off the Washington football team taking Kentucky linebacker Jamin Davis with the number 19 pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a man who knows Jamin Davis well. He is Kentucky co-defensive coordinator and inside linebackers coach John Sumrall, who this offseason has had co-defensive coordinator added to his job title. Coach, congrats on the promotion. It's great to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing great, man. It's easy to get promotions when you got players like Jamin. So he made, he made me look pretty good. Maybe look like I was, I knew what I was doing. So. <laughs> but appreciate, appreciate you having me. Glad yeah. Here well, I'm sure you had something to do with it as well. What would you say that Washington is getting in Jamin Davis? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you're going to outstand a young man. I think he's a, a genuine, authentic, you know, relationship driven guy who cares about people, cares about his teammates greatly. Um, so I think he's a great human being. I think he's a kid that loves football. I mean, he's a worker. He's going to do everything he can to make himself better day in, day out. So I think they're getting a guy that loves practicing, loves, loves playing the game. And then obviously they're getting a, a, a talented athlete. I mean, you look at the guy play on video, you look at what his pro day numbers were, easy to see he's got the measurables, he's got the physical traits you need to, to be an elite level player. And so I think great human being, hard worker, loves ball but it also happens to be really talented physically, checks a lot of the boxes that I think that, you know, the people are looking for. Yeah, I got a lot to ask you about Jamin, the player, but Jamin, the person, it's been so cool to hear about, you know, all this great stuff with him. Washington, as I'm sure you know, has had a lot of problems. Ron Rivera is in the midst of this culture overhaul, and Jamin is a person that, that's like one of the reasons Washington drafted him. Ron very much emphasized that. 
What can you tell us about Jamin, the person, and how he fit into the culture of Kentucky football? You know, things didn't come just right out of the gate fast here, Jamin. For Jamin as a player, he was a he wasn't a five star recruit. I mean, he was a, a little bit under the radar. Um, he was a developmental player here. Came here at 196 pounds, finished at 234, 235 pounds. But he's not an overnight sensation. So, like, I know a lot of people in the draft world view him as an overnight sensation, but it took the guy a long time and a lot of hard work to get to where he is. Um, so he, he's going to be a guy that works really hard. But on top of that, he's a guy that always promotes his teammates' success. Like, he would tell you if you had him on the show – Man, he would tell you DeAndre Square's name like 50 times, and that's our starting wheel linebacker. And Square's like one of the smartest football guys I've ever met. And, and Jamin has, you know, become that, but Square and him are really, really close and really tight. And Jamin is not an attention seeking me first guy. He would deflect a lot of the accolades and praise to his teammates, his peers. Um, and, and so he's that kind of guy. It's not about him. It's about the team, you know, and he's a very grounded, kid comes from a military family uh, and, and I think that has a lot to do with you know he, he's he's a person of service he's thinking about how can I help others it's not all about him so they're getting a, a uniquely uh, gifted guy from how he's wired mentally of he's not a selfish me first guy he's actually a team um, and, and wants to promote others as much as himself in some regards. So your first season at Kentucky was 2019. That was Jamin's redshirt sophomore season. He was only a starter, as you just alluded to, for one season 2020, but he was a monster that season. What went into the drastic improvement for Jamin from 2019 to 2020? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the spring of 2019 for us, we left spring practice, and defensively, our whole defensive staff, I told you, man, he was probably the most improved player that spring. And then he had a, a little bit of a, a nagging hamstring injury, nothing major, but enough to kind of have to hold him back early in training camp that year. And and so we had high expectations for him coming into the 2019 year, what he could do. And then was probably a little bit delayed. Last half of the year, the 2019 season, um, you could start to see some of those um, those things, those signs that showed up earlier coming back of like he's about to make a big jump here um, and, and played really well the last four or five games of the 2019 season. Had five or six tackles in every every one of those last four or five games. The bowl game against Virginia Tech, Vanderbilt, Louisville, he made some plays and started to flash again. Um, had always been a very productive special teams player. Had been a four-core starter as a young player. And then – Coming into this 2020 season, we kind of had three starters for two spots, and Jamin was one of those three. And um, and then we had a young man who had a stroke, um, then Chris Oates, and was one of those three starters for those two spots. And Jamin was one of the guys we considered as, as one of the three guys that was going to be kind of like a split starter. And I think maybe, you know, that situation with Chris, um, Chris and him were very close, and I think it, it helped maybe even more so with a sense of urgency that it was already there, but it just went to a different level. Um, so I think you had a guy that was on a mission. I mean, he was in, in the meeting room an hour early a lot of days. He was in my office every Thursday at 11 when our first meeting didn't start till like 1.45 or 2 o'clock. I'm like, dude, can you leave me alone for like 10 minutes? Like, I need, I need to eat lunch. But he was working every time he could work 
to get better, improve his craft, know where my eyes going to be on this play. What's my first key? What's my second key? What's my primary responsibility? And so I think the big jump just happened with confidence. You know, I tell guys all the time, knowledge equals confidence, and confidence allows you to play fast. And I think his knowledge base grew. He became more confident. And his natural physical traits that are already there were able to be cut loose and play faster because he, he became a, a more knowledgeable player. Talking Jamin Davis with Kentucky co-defensive coordinator and inside linebackers coach John Sumrall. So Jamin was a tackling machine for Kentucky in 2020. Was his tackling ever something that you had to work on with him, or is he a natural tackler? He's a pretty natural tackler. He, uh, you know, if you gave me a hundred dollars and I had to bet it on one guy on our team to get the guy to the ground that's got the ball, I don't care where it is. If it was out in space, on the perimeter, in the box, in the run game, my, my money was probably going Jamie the last year. So he, he, he's got a knack for, you know, playing sideline to sideline. There's a couple of plays in the old miss game where he's in the box and they give Elijah Moore a fly sweep and he makes a play on the other sideline. And you're like, wow, that's range. And then you see him make plays in the box and knock people back. And you're like, all right, there's some physicality. And then you see him drop into coverage and make plays. So he's he's ultra productive from a tackling standpoint. He thinks every every time somebody's got the ball, he's supposed to be the guy making the tackle. He does not look for somebody else to make the play. He's going to be hungry to get in on as many plays as possible. And um, his athletic ability allows him to do that, but also I think his football instincts and IQ are going to help him too. You mentioned Jamin in coverage. How was Jamin in pass coverage at Kentucky? How often did he do it, and how do you see him doing with it in the NFL? Yeah, he's really good at it. I mean, I think, you know, he had uh, three interceptions this year. Um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of highlights you see will be the one against Tennessee when he's in the strong hook. It's an 85-yard interception for a touchdown. But he's got really good length. I mean, he's 6'3 and some change. Um, he's got great arm length. Um, really good movement skills, uh, good ball skills, can play in space. So in coverage, he's elite. Like he, we were, we were oftentimes like you're in a situation where it's like, all right, can we blitz him and have him cover? You know, you'd like to have him do both, but not, that's not possible. So if we tried to, tried to, you know, in the bowl game, we, we blitzed him against NC State and he got a sack, but we also knew anytime we sent him, we were losing a very productive guy in coverage. And a guy that closed a lot of throwing lanes. I mean, when you're a quarterback and you got a guy with that length that plays that fast, he can take up a lot of windows and a lot of space quickly on you. So he really, I think that's one area where he did grow to is just route recognition, route awareness, um, and, and vision of if a certain receiver does something, what's that tell me it's about to happen next? He started to see that stuff better and better, but really good in coverage. I think we'll do a great job in you know, the NFL as a, as a coverage linebacker. I don't know if you look at or even care about the pro football focus stuff, but PFF graded Jamin as one of the best linebackers in the FBS last season against the run. How would you describe Jamin against the run? I think Jamin really grew a lot in the run, probably as much in the box as anywhere. Um, as far as seeing pullers, seeing linemen, understanding blocking schemes, um, how our fronts, fronts relate to those blocking schemes. So we came better and better. I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot of times in our game in college in particular is the amount of quarterback run you see. And on, and on top of that, the amount of RPO that you see. So 
he was in some situations that were maybe run past conflicts at times, but he did a good job of, of seeing things, diagnosing things, knowing when to pull the pin at times, and then being able to stack and fall and fit back on some stuff. So really developed as a, as a, as a box player, seeing the run game stuff, knowing the, what the fits were. Um, so I think, I think he's, you know, unique in that stat that, yeah, he can drop into coverage playing space. He also does a really good job going forward and knocking ball carriers backwards, too. Washington football team now has a 4-3 base defense. As you know, NFL teams are a nickel like 70% of the time, so what your base is can be a little overrated. But in terms of which linebacker position in the 4-3 Jamin is best at, Mike, Sam, or Will, do you have an opinion on that? You know what? I think Jamin is is very versatile. Um, I think he can plug and play. I think he has a lot of position flex. You know, we're a 3-4 team. We do some 4-3 stuff, but we're, we base up a 3-4. And for us, he could have played outside linebacker or inside linebacker. Um, and so I think, I think in a 4-3 system, he could play any of the spots. I really do. I think he can, I think he's got the ability to play any of them. Uh, and the athletic stuff is, is there for all of them. The mental stuff is there for all of them. So I think he's got a lot of versatility, a lot of position flex. Um, I think that's probably one of the more intriguing things about him is most NFL teams that, that I've talked to throughout the process were very, very um, excited about how much he could do for you and how many different spots he could play. So as he gets up to speed in the playbook, the multiplicity uh, of things he can do, I think, makes him unique. Did you talk to Washington in the pre-draft process? Yeah, there was contact. I know um, a lot of guys are staff. A couple guys know more people in that franchise than I did. But we were – I think I probably talked to all 32 teams at some point, somebody, about Jamie. I mean, I, my, my phone was uh, was buzzing a lot more than, than normal around draft time. It, it was something else, too, because, I mean, Jamin, of course, had the great 2020, but the rise continued in the pre-draft process, this, like, meteoric surge. He has this incredible pro day for Kentucky – and goes from being like, I don't know, maybe a third round pick to being a first round pick. I'm assuming you weren't surprised at what Jamin did at the Kentucky Pro Day. You know, I really wasn't. I, before, about a week before the Pro Day, he calls me. Jamin and I are really close. And he calls me and he says, Coach, uh, I can't wait for Pro Day. I'm, I'm going to kill it. And I said, well, that's awesome. I can't wait to watch it. What are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to run 4-4, which he did. He said, I'm going to broad jump 11 feet, which he did. He said, I'm going to vertical north of 40 inches, which he did. And he said, I'm going to do 225, 24, 25 times, which I think he missed by like a rep or two. But he called the shot and all the, all the measurable stuff and he freaking hit all of them. Um, so he was, he was, you know, it was one of those situations where I think because he was not on the radar coming into the season as much for a lot of scouts and a lot of NFL executives. I think maybe, you know, when he declared, a lot of people were like, all right, who is this guy? And um, people went back and watched the tape. And I had a lot of people, after they started to watch all the tape, they're calling me going, hey, he's a late first, maybe second round guy. All right, cool. And then they start, um, after watching a bunch of the tape, they start doing Zoom interviews. And then I got a lot of people going, all right, he's going to go between – 18 or 20 and like 40. I'm like, all right, that's good. And then he does pro day and they're like, he's going to be a first round. You know, and it's like, so it was one of those really cool experiences of seeing a young man 
Like, the more people got to know about him, the more they liked him. You know, I mean, that they watched the video that showed, yeah, he checked those boxes to be able to play at that level. They, they did the Zooms and got to know the kid as a person and also know how he thinks as a football player and communicates on installs. And that helped him keep rising. And then he did Pro Day, and that helped him keep rising. And so the more people found out about him, the more investigative research they did, the more they liked. You know, there, there was nothing that ever in the process had him go backwards because he's one of the kind of, he's one of those kids that you're like, the more you know him, the more you like him. And that's how he is. So fun to see his rise. He's one of those guys who deserves it. To the person who is concerned that Jamin Davis was only a starter at Kentucky for one season, you say what? I say he played in the highest level of college football and is the best linebacker in that conference. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer of there's three leagues in football that matter. There's the NFC, the AFC, and the SEC. <laughs> and, and if you're the best linebacker in the SEC, then you're ready for the NFL. Final question, and this is kind of a more global issue, but you lead right into it. Coaching in the best conference in college football like you do and having to deal with what you have to deal with, you know, these freak athletes, spread formation, read option oriented, high octane offenses. Where are we going with defense in football collegiately and professionally? I would think it's never been harder to scheme things up, especially with the way that rules are massaged to favor offenses. Where do you think we're headed in terms of defense in the game of football moving forward? Yeah, I think you've seen um, defenses, number one, looking to get as many different athletic-type guys in the field as possible. The days of just big, clunky players is not um, in vogue. You, you have to match up with speed in space. You know, I always talk about you got to be able to play with speed in space. And so um, I think that's changed personnel, kind of what you're looking at a lot of times. Um, at the linebacker position a lot. You're looking for length, which can close some of that space as well. Um, and then schematically, I mean, like you said, we're seeing really good stuff. Like we played Alabama this year, not on, on top of it. Yeah, they got great players, but the schemes are great. You're, you're putting a lot of binds. And so we're having to figure out different ways we can offset that with trying to do things that, that don't allow offenses to dictate to us all the time what we're going to do. We're trying to like go back at them and dictate. All right, we we're going to force you to do this. Um, and so we're we're a lot of times in the past game trying to figure out how can we make them keep the back in protection. How can we um, double up a certain receiver in certain scenarios and, and lean coverages to where maybe we we've got an advantage in certain matchups. And so there's a lot of things out there. The college game's different, maybe because the quarterback run is even more prevalent. But but the offense is. And you got great athletes. You got, you know, our league, um, in, in the NFL too, our league 15, 20 years ago, you saw a lot of games that were like 17 to 14, right. 14 to 10. Now everybody's winning, scoring a bunch of points. I mean, Alabama used to be, um, you know, known for not scoring a bunch of points, but winning a bunch of games. And even then now they're blowing the top off of the scoreboard. So, we're having to get creative in how we do things, and I think you have to you have to match them up and figure out different ways to attack them. But it starts with the players. I mean, you can't get just big guys that can't run. You got to be able to run. You got to have length, and you got to play in space. Excellent. Well, congrats to you on your promotion and all your success. And we're so excited to have Jamin Davis here in Washington, Coach John Sumrall. Uh, very much appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. 
Appreciate you having me. Thanks, Al. And if you ever have a problem with Jamin Davis, call me. I will. You shouldn't, but if you do, call me. It was a wild Monday night when it came to games for the Capitals and the Wizards. We sort through the chaos right now. We'll start with the Caps, who did win. They improved to 33-14-5, a 6-3 victory at the New York Rangers. And also on Monday night were some favorable results when it comes to the Caps in the East Division. The Pittsburgh Penguins lost at the Philadelphia Flyers 7-2. The New York Islanders lost at the Buffalo Sabres 4-2. The Boston Bruins did win at the New Jersey Devils 3-0. So the Caps and Penguins now tied atop the East Division at 71 points. The Bruins, who clinched a playoff spot with their win, are third at 68 points. And the Islanders have fallen to fourth at 67 points. Now, lot to get to with this game for the Caps, and so much of it really has not much to do with the actual play on the ice. But we'll start with Alex Ovechkin, who was back on Monday night and then was out again. Ovi returned from a four-game absence that was caused by a lower body injury that he suffered in that Capitals 1-0 shootout win at the Islanders all the way back on April 22nd now. But he ended up playing for just one shift on Monday night, then left the game with what was called a lower body injury. So his previous injury very clearly got aggravated. Head coach Peter Laviolette in his post-game Zoom press conference, quote, the first shift, he just didn't feel comfortable. So at that point, again, we're not going to push or risk. He came out for a spin and decided to call it off. And quote, you heard me rant about this Ovechkin situation on the previous installment of this podcast. Like, I feel like not a lot of attention has been paid to it. I feel like there's been sort of a minimizing of it. We've had the sense that the injury isn't that serious. And I guess you still would say it can't be that serious because he was back out there at least trying to play on Monday night. But the fact that he had to leave the game after just one shift, after just 39 seconds of ice time, is certainly concerning. I mean, the Stanley Cup playoffs are coming up. The Capitals, as we speak here on this Tuesday, have just four regular season games left. Obviously, you want Ovechkin good to go for the postseason. And right now, he isn't good to go. So in a lot of ways, that's the big takeaway from Monday night in this win for the Capitals at the Rangers. Now, also when it came to injury slash absence, defenseman John Carlson was back on Monday night. So that was good news. He returned from a two-game absence caused by a lower body injury of his own. He actually looked pretty good. Finished fifth on the Caps in the game in five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick. But the Caps were without TJ Oshie, although that was due to personal reasons, not an injury. And defenseman Justin Schultz was out again due to a lower body injury. That makes now four of the last six games that Justin Schultz has not been able to play. I'm assuming this is the same lower body injury that caused him to miss three consecutive games. Although with hockey injuries, again, you never know. So maybe it's a new lower body injury. But whatever the case, old Schultz was out again on Monday night. And then there were the two bad boys of the Capitals. The two Russian bad boys of the Capitals. You know who I'm talking about if you're a Caps fan. Evgeny Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov. Neither guy played on Monday night due to team disciplinary reasons as the players were late to a team function. Now, this in and of itself is not that big of a deal. Capitals have clinched a spot in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Capitals, like we've talked about, don't even need to win the East Division truly because seeding really doesn't mean that much in the NHL postseason. But here we go again with Kuznetsov and Samsonov. You know, Kuzi has a history of doing stuff that turns you off. Of course, with Kuzi, you have the suspension. Evgeny Kuznetsov, remember, September 2019, suspended without pay for three regular season games for, quote, inappropriate conduct. The inappropriate conduct 
was cocaine use that he lied about, remember, because it was in August of that year that the International Ice Hockey Federation suspended Kuznetsov for four years for testing positive for cocaine. And Kuznetsov, remember, lied. It was on Memorial Day 2019 that video emerged on social media of Kuznetsov appearing to be in a hotel room with several lines of what looked like cocaine. Kuznetsov later that day issued a statement to the Russian daily sports newspaper Sport Express saying that the video was from the summer of 2018 and that he had never used drugs. Yeah, uh, so much for that. Also with Kuznetsov, the guy has been benched in the past. The guy has disappeared at times. He's incredibly gifted. He's been a very productive player for the Capitals. You could argue he, not Ovechkin, should have gotten the Conn Smythe Trophy in 2018. But here we go again with another boo-boo by Okuzi. And you wonder if his influence is rubbing off on Samsonov. You know, Samsonov is a guy who now you have a list of things off the ice that have caused problems. Remember last summer what happened? Ilya Samsonov suffering an injury prior to training camp for the restart of the season off the COVID-19 induced shutdown ended up not traveling with the Caps to the Eastern Conference hub city of Toronto. What happened? How did Samsonov suffer an injury prior to the restart of the season? Well, it was an off-ice injury in Russia, according to the Capitol Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan in a Zoom press conference last July 31st. And a report from Russia in August of last year said that Samsonov had gotten hurt in an ATV accident in Russia. You also had Kuznetsov and Samsonov, along with Ovechkin and Dmitry Orlov, missing significant time earlier this season due to COVID-19 protocol. So I don't know how long this punishment for Kuznetsov and Samsonov will last, but approaching the postseason, here we go again with these two. You know, they have to miss a game because they were late to a team function. Now, as for the actual game on Monday night, the Cavs blew a 2-0 first period lead in allowing the Rangers to score three consecutive goals, then scored the game's final four goals. Caps won the puck possession battle, especially over the final two periods. Caps over the final two periods per natural stat trick, 32 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Rangers 18, including 11 high danger five on five shot attempts to the Rangers five. So you liked a good bit of what you did see in terms of the play on Monday night. Big Take Vanacek was the cap starting goaltender third time in four games, stopped 23 of the 26 shots on goal that he faced per natural stat trick, stopped six of the eight high danger shots on goal that he faced. So kind of a typical Vanacek game, not great, but not bad, ends up being good enough to win. And then there is this. So the Caps went 0 for 1 on the power play, also just 3 or 4 on the penalty kill, but just one power play for the Caps on Monday night, despite the Rangers committing five minors. Why? Because the Caps themselves committed six minors and seven total penalties, four of which were charged to Tom Wilson. Tom Wilson received three roughing minors and a 10-minute game misconduct in the game, All hell broke loose, 7.40 into the second period. A massive scuffle broke out. The scuffle included Wilson cross-checking Pavel Buchnevich and slamming and then grounding and pounding Artemi Panarin on the ice, okay? If you're a UFC fan, you know all about the ground and pound, and that's what Wilson was doing to the bread man, Artemi Panarin, as that scuffle was busting out. Wilson was completely out of control, and I say this as a lifelong Caps fan, as a big time Wilson fan, he lost it in this game on Monday night. It, it, it was so funny. Wilson finished the game with an empty net goal, a secondary assist, and four penalties that totaled 16 minutes. But the concern for me here is, is another suspension coming for Tom Wilson? Again, the Stanley Cup playoffs are coming up. The Capitals have just four regular season games left. Wilson this season already has served a seven game suspension. Although remember, the Caps went 7-0-0 
during that suspension. But that was in March for a hard hit that Wilson had on Bruins defenseman Brandon Carlo in a 5-1 loss at the Bruins on March 5th. Now, the thing to remember about that suspension is this. The hit that Wilson had on Carlo, no penalty was called on that hit. And yet still, Tom Wilson got a seven-game suspension, what was the fifth NHL suspension for Wilson, all since September 2017. My point is, the NHL doesn't need a reason anymore to suspend Tom Wilson. The NHL is sick of the Tom Wilson act, and for him to behave as he ended up behaving on Monday night, he's got to be better than that. He's got to keep himself under control. He's a very good player. He's a very key player. He can't keep getting suspended. Now, I don't know with certainty that he's going to get suspended for what went down on Monday night, but I think there's a chance. There may even be a really good chance, and a Capitals team that is currently, right, been without Alex Ovechkin, been dealing with Justin Schultz being in and out of the lineup. You know, TJ Oshie missed the game on Monday night due to personal reasons. Again, Kuznetsov, Samsonov, like, who knows what's going to happen with those two, and, uh, you know, if they end up getting suspended again for doing something. Like, you need your horses. You need your weapons. Tom Wilson is a real weapon, uh, literally and figuratively. And I did not like seeing that in that game on Monday night. He's tough as nails. You love having him on your team, but he's got to do a better job of not getting himself in trouble. And I just worry about him now being back in trouble with the NHL. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Capitals, again, four regular season games left. Next up, oh, by the way, at the Rangers, Wednesday night at seven. That's the thing. In this season in which teams are only playing intra-division games, you develop a familiarity with these teams. And at this point in the season, I'm guessing a lot of these teams are sick of each other. And that may well have been what so much of that scuffle on Monday night for the Capitals with the Rangers was about. So a crazy Monday night for the Capitals and a crazy Monday night for our basketball team, the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, sir, Stephen A., but it was another win for the Wizards in what was a big game for the Wizards. A 154-141 victory over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena. Yes, if you were one of the lucky few able to attend by Empress Bowser at Capital One Arena on Monday night, you got to witness a total of 295 points scored in an NBA game. The Wizards get to 30 and 35 overall, get to 12 and 23 against Eastern Conference teams this season. A rare Wizards victory against an Eastern Conference team. And the Wizards now 13 and 3 over the team's last 16 games. Now, I mentioned this being a big game. It was from a standing standpoint as the Wizards are in the midst of trying to make it into the play-in tournament. That's for seeds 7 through 10 in each conference. The Wizards now have earned the season tiebreaker with the Pacers as the Wizards improved to 2-0 against Indiana, which is one game left against the Pacers in the regular season. So the Wizards now are just a half game behind the Pacers for ninth in the East. I mean, the more you look at things, the more it does look like the Wizards are going to make this play-in tournament. Wizards are currently 10th in the East, but have a shot to get to 9th, maybe even higher. And as crazy as the game was from an offense standpoint, the Wizards actually played well. The Wizards did not trail after the first quarter. The Wizards were incredible offensively. Like, yes, you can mock the lack of defense in the game, and I'll get to that in a moment, but the Wizards offensively put on a show in this game on Monday night. The Wizards shot 61.2% from the field, including 9 of 22 on three. So, you know, the Wizards have not been a great three-point shooting team this season from a percentage standpoint, shot the ball well on threes on Monday night. Although 9 of 22 in this day and age, it's not some like gargantuan night from beyond the arc. But here's the thing for the Wizards on Monday night, 54 of 81 
on twos. 54 of 81. The Wizards outscored the Pacers in the paint 96-60. The Wizards had 96 paint points in this game on Monday night. Also had, you ready for this, 30 fast break points to the Pacers four. The Wizards over the second and third quarters scored 86 points. 86 points for the Wizards over quarters two and three on Monday night. Now, I mentioned the defense. Like, no doubt, no one is going to comp this game to, you know, early 90s NBA, you know, Knicks heat at the Garden or anything like that. But, but, while the Wizards did allow the Pacers to shoot 14 to 27 on threes, the Wizards did hold the Pacers to just 39 of 80 on twos. So the three-point defense, again, for the Wizards wasn't good enough. But the interior defense was more than acceptable. I mean, you hold a team to less than 50% shooting on twos, you're doing something well. The Pacers, again, just 39 of 80 on twos in the game. Remember, a game that's high scoring isn't necessarily just a result of horrendous defense. It's also a result of pace. Teams in the NBA now play with a ton of pace. So you have to look beyond just the final scores when you're trying to figure out, okay, was this just another instance of bad defense or was this an instance of just rapid pace? Now, this game had a little bit of both, all right? Again, this was not Knicks Heat circa 94, but I did want to point that out. Pacers 14 to 27 on threes, but just 39 of 80 on twos. So I mentioned the Wizards being incredible offensively on Monday night. Russell Westbrook was a monster again. I cannot get enough of Russell Westbrook right now. He is playing out of his mind another triple-double, extending his single-season and career franchise records with his 32nd triple-double of the season. I had it in my mind that he had a triple-double in that loss at the Dallas Mavericks on Saturday night. He didn't. He missed a triple-double in that game by just one assist. But in this game, Westbrook, 14 points, 24 assists versus six turnovers, and 21 rebounds. Let me read that line to you again. 14 points, 24 assists versus six turnovers, and 21 rebounds in 38 minutes, 38 seconds as a starter. And Westbrook did shoot the ball well. He went five of eight from the field, uh, all twos, and four of four on free throws, which for Westbrook is a victory because he's not been very good on free throws this season. But another tremendous performance by Russell Westbrook. The triple-double is number 178 in his regular season career. So he is now three shy of Oscar Robertson's NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles. The big O at 181 sits atop the list, not for much longer. And how about this for Westbrook on Monday night? He clinched averaging a triple-double in a regular season for the fourth time in his career. The Wizards have seven games left in the regular season. Westbrook could play in each of those seven games have zero points, zero assists, zero rebounds in each of those seven games, and still would end up finishing the regular season averaging a triple-double. He has clinched averaging a triple-double in this regular season for the fourth time in his career. The only other player to do this is Oscar Robertson, and he only did it once. That was for the 1961-62 season. Westbrook, again, has done this for a fourth time. I mean, think about that. As flawed as Westbrook can be, you know, inefficient, turnover prone, etc., he has had one of the most spectacular statistical careers in NBA history, and he is playing so well right now. I mean, this to me really is some of the best basketball of Russell Westbrook's career, what we are seeing, and it's amazing given how lackluster he looked earlier in the season. Now, Westbrook late on Monday night did say that he played with a torn quad earlier this season. Remember, he did deal with a quadriceps injury 
that we were told about. So Westbrook presumably now healthier and playing so much better and not so coincidentally, the Wizards are as well. Bradley Beal on Monday night, just one of five on threes. Another bad game for Beal on threes. I've said this. I mean, he's just not had a good season shooting the three. He's now actually three of 14 on threes over his last three games. He's shooting a career worst 34.5% on threes for the season. But Beal, like the Wizards, good on twos, 10 of 19, finished with 26.6 assists versus five turnovers, five rebounds, and two steals. Rui Hachimura had a big night on Monday night, 27 points on 12 of 19 shooting and seven rebounds in just 31 minutes, 19 seconds as a starter. Raul Neto had another good game on Monday night. I sung his praises on the podcast for Monday. Neto starting for a ninth consecutive game with, remember, Denny Abdia done for the season. And Neto, nine points on three of seven shooting, eight assists versus no turnovers in just 23 minutes, 42 seconds of playing time. Like, it's not always just what someone does. It's in how much time someone does what he does. Neto in this game, nine points, eight assists, no turnovers in less than 24 minutes of playing time. He now has 12 assists versus no turnovers over the last two games. And then there was the Wizards bench, a tremendous performance by the Wizards bench. Five Wizards reserves combined for 66 points. And you talk about efficiency. Daniel Gafford, 15 points, seven of seven shooting and three blocks in just 15 minutes, 11 seconds of playing time. Chandler Hutchison was good. He's shown some signs of life here over the last few weeks. 13 points, five of seven shooting, three assists versus no turnovers and three steals in 16-23 off the bench. Ish Smith, another good game for him. Another guy who's come on over the last few weeks, 13 points, six of eight shooting, 17-31 off the bench. Robin Lopez was efficient again, 11 points, five of seven shooting, 15-45 off the bench. Davies Bertans did struggle. You know, his bad season continued, four of 11 on threes, five fouls in 26-55 off the bench. This off Bertans in that loss at the Dallas Mavericks on Saturday night, going just one of five on threes, having just five points. But I'll give Oberti some credit. He did on Monday night finish with 14 points, five assists, versus two turnovers and four rebounds. Even Alex Len got in on the act. I've pointed this out with Len. He starts, but he doesn't play. He played for 17 minutes, three seconds on Monday night, 12 points on four of four shooting. Len in that loss at the Mavs on Saturday night played for less than five minutes in the game. It's been so odd with him at times where he'll start, but like barely play. Played a little more on Monday night and the Wizards ended up rolling. This is such a different team from what we had seen for so much of this year. The Wizards have been all over the map this season. Three and 12 start, then a 10 and six stretch, then a four and 14 stretch, now a 13 and three stretch. If you're confused, it's understandable, but just understand the Wizards are doing well. The Wizards now 30 and 35 on the season, looking very well when it comes to making the play-in tournament. There are bigger picture conversations we can have. As I've said, when it comes to making the playoffs, I think there is value in it because it shows that the Wizards have more than we thought they maybe had. And maybe just maybe if you can add a big piece this offseason, that's a big if, but if you can do that, Wizards can maybe be a serious factor in the Eastern Conference next season. I don't see that happening this season, although the way they're playing, who knows? But no, I don't really truly see that happening this season. But the success of this season as it's gone on does make you think, okay, this team with this group, with maybe a new coach, we'll see. But this team with this group, if it adds another major piece this offseason, really can make hay in the Eastern Conference. Wizards have like I said, seven games left in the regular season. Next up are five consecutive road games for the Wizards. Wizards at the Milwaukee Bucks Wednesday night at 8, then at, quote-unquote, the Toronto Raptors Thursday night at 7.30. Remember the Raptors playing their home games in Florida. Then the Wizards are at the Pacers Saturday night 
at seven. And then the Wizards have back-to-back road games at the Atlanta Hawks. And let's go ahead and complete the winning trifecta on this Tuesday podcast. Capitals won on Monday night. Wizards won on Monday night. And the Orioles were in the win column on Monday night. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, thank you, Joe Angel. Late on Monday night, while many of you were sleeping, while some of you were engaged in deviant acts, the Orioles won again a 5-3 victory at the Seattle Mariners in game one of a three-game series. The O's now are 3-1 and one over the first four games of a six-game trip out west against the top two teams in the American League West, the Oakland A's and the Seattle Mariners. O's are doing a nice job so far this year. They're now 14-15 and 15 overall, bizarrely 10-5 and five on the road versus 4-10 and 10 at home, and a terrific outing late Monday night from Dean Kramer, one of these prized Orioles prospects this season, of course, is all about the prospects and wanting these guys to demonstrate, hey, we are here and we are building blocks upon which the next good Orioles teams can be established. Kramer had not done well so far this season. He did quite well on Monday night. Goes out there, gives you one run in six innings on four strikeouts versus just two hits, a homer and a single and two walks on 94 pitches, 61 of which were strikes. This was by far his best start so far this season. Kramer came into the game with an ERA of 840, 14 runs in 15 innings over four starts on the season. He, in his third start of the season, actually didn't look that bad. One run in four and two-thirds innings, six strikeouts, and a 6-1 win at the Texas Rangers on April 17th. But the O's after that game optioned Kramer to the alternate training site at Double A Bowie. Kramer began the season as the Orioles' number five starter. Very good to see him pitch as he did on Monday night. Dean Kramer is one of the guys who the O's got from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the package for Manny Machado in July 2018. He's in his age 25 season, and he looks sharp on Monday night. So very encouraging to see that. The other thing that really stood out for Monday night was another big game for Cedric Mullins. I mean, this guy has been out of his mind so far this season. Starting center fielder, number one batter, three hits, two RBI on Monday night, two out first pitch single in the top of the third, a two-run homer on a one-two pitch in an Orioles five-run eighth, and then a two-out double in the top of the ninth. The Orioles offense has not been good so far this season. It's so funny. The pitching really has been the strength. Like, if there's a reason the O's are one game below 500, it's been the pitching. John Means, Matt Harvey to a lesser extent, maybe now Dean Kramer, bullpen for the most part for the O's has been good. But the one bright spot offensively, like the one guy who really truly has killed it so far is Cedric Mullins. He's batting 333. He has a 389 on base percentage. He has a 553 slugging percentage. I mean, the guy has just been tremendous. Another big game for him on Monday night. Another Orioles item to be mindful of if you're an O's fan is this. So rosters for minor league teams were announced on Monday. As for the first time in two years, we will have a minor league season this year. Nice to have that. The Orioles put two of their top prospects on the AA Bowie Bay Sox. The team's top position playing prospect, the catcher, Adley Rutschman, the phenom, the wunderkind, and the Orioles' second best pitching prospect, starter D.L. Hall. So Rutschman, of course, is the headliner, number one pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of Oregon State. He, as we speak, is ranked by MLB Pipeline as the number two prospect in all of baseball. Tampa Bay Rays shortstop Wander Franco is number one. But like Rutschman is the thing. It's going to be such a big deal when he finally makes his major league debut. That almost certainly will not happen this season, but I think it very much could happen next season. Obviously, with a guy like Rutschman, you're going to be cognizant of the service time clock. You don't want to start that until you feel like you really truly have to. And then with D.L. Hall, number 21 overall pick 
in the 2017 draft. He, as we speak for MLB Pipeline, is the number 60 prospect in all of baseball. So Bowie Bay Sox is going to be interesting to follow, certainly because of Rutschman, but to a lesser extent, D.L. Hall and some others as well. And how about this? On MLB Pipeline, there was a ranking of the most loaded minor league rosters in baseball with the minor league season now set to get going. The Bowie Bay Sox ranked in the top 10. Bowie Bay Sox number nine in terms of the most loaded minor league rosters in the sport. Here was some of what was written. Quote, finally, the baseball world will get to see a full system of Rutschman. The 2019 top overall pick begins his 2021 jersey at Bowie, where he brings plus offensive potential as a switch hitter and a full suite of defensive tools behind the plate. Pairing him with Hall is enticing, considering the left-hander has his own considerable ceiling with a high 90s fastball, above-average curveball, and above-average change. There's the possibility that Rutschman could make any Bay Sox pitching prospect he works with better because of his catching glove work, end quote. Yeah, I mean, there is a dearth of quality catchers in Major League Baseball now, especially catchers who can hit well. That's part of what makes Rutschman so interesting. He can hit he can field like he could be a franchise catcher. There are just so few of those, and there have been so few of those in recent seasons. Now, I think there is kind of a concern of like, do you really want him playing catcher? It's such a... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Grueling, demanding, taxing position. And at some point, maybe he makes the position switch. Remember, Bryce Harper originally was a catcher. Nationals didn't play around with that at all. They immediately put him as an outfielder. So we'll see ultimately what Rutschman ends up being. But because he's good defensively, you don't want to waste that. Catcher is the number one position in the sport in terms of defense, right? If you're ranking the top defensive positions in baseball in terms of position players, catcher's number one. It's the most important. So if you have a guy who excels defensively and he can hit, that is so valuable. That is so far beyond what most teams have. Game two for the Orioles at the Mariners, 10-10 on Tuesday night. Jorge Lopez versus Justin Dunn. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. 
Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Wednesday's installment of the podcast, another special guest regarding the Washington football team's 2021 draft, so stay tuned for that. We'll also get into the game one for the Nationals against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on Tuesday night. Big series for Davey and the boys this week. And you know what? We'll see if FP Santangelo is on the call for Masson. Very strange, him missing these recent games. Neither Masson nor the Nats is saying why. The Washington Post actually had an article that came out about this on Monday. I'll hold off on talking about this until we find out more, but you got to wonder what exactly is going on here. Bob Carpenter has missed some time recently as well, but that was scheduled and Bob Carpenter has been referenced on the telecast. FP, uh, you're not hearing like anything about. So we'll see where this saga ends up going. Anyway, have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. How do you like me now? How do you like me now?